Okay, hi, good afternoon, everyone. Beth Massa here from the Rock and Roll Porter Podcast. And today I am talking with a woman named Choni Bain. Um, normally I would discuss Choni's job title, but that's not at all interesting to me right now. Choni in my life has always been something of this mystery, wisdom, goddess, fairy, advisor, ruler, leader, feminine energy, power, entity, which all sounds very woo-woo and very, um, maybe even a bit silly, but Choni in my life has been incredibly influential in these tiny little moments, and I've only received these moments from her. She's a very busy woman on the management team of a company we both used to work for when I was sort of the little house deer or the, uh, the little house pet um, in the company. And so I'm using this opportunity because she's generously agreed to sit with me for the Rock and Roll Porter podcast so that I can find out a little bit more about this woman who just drops into my life, um, you know, sprinkles a little bit of sand under my shell of, of wisdom sand and it turns into this pearl. And I'll get into that in a little bit. So I want to welcome you, Choni. Hello. Hi. <laughs> hi, Beth. Nice to see you again after such a while. a while. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you a question we always start out with. Why are we talking today? Well, I think you said a whole lot already, right? So we, I, I think we, we met at that certain company, uh, big company. Um, and in, in these big companies, you always have those that are like anyone else. But you, there's also a few that's, that stand out or are different. Uh, and I have a tendency to notice those. Uh, and I, I think that's, and you were one of those. Uh, so we had in between meetings, uh, interesting conversations. Um, and since then I follow you after you left and you, you, you started your startup. But uh, yeah, that's why we're here, I think today. Okay, so you call them conversations. I don't really remember us ever having a conversation. <laughs> My version of it is I'm stuck, I need advice. Um, please somebody give me you know, 15 minutes on Honey's calendar. And you would sit with me, I would say, I'm stuck. You would give me one or two sentences, and then that's all I would need to get going. Uh-huh. And so the first of these sentences that I remember, there's two, there's two things that I wanted to, to, to talk to you about today, because I bet you don't remember this at all. But I was stuck, I was frustrated, I asked for a little bit of time, and you said to me, Beth, stop asking for permission you only need to give yourself. Mm. And that advice was so valuable to me. It was exactly what I needed to hear. I have passed on that advice to so many other people. So this is something that I want you to know is that this 30 seconds that you gave me has probably resulted in hours and hours and hours or years or days or whatever of passing along or passing forward that advice to other people in the same situation. Mm. I'd love to explore the concept of that. Um, that idea a little bit later on and the other thing that happened we you were in the lobby and I walked into the lobby and I was wearing sunglasses 
And you said, Beth, take those sunglasses off. You need to let the sunlight into your eyes. And I was like, oh, that's just Hody being Hony with all her like <laughs> stuff. Um, I don't want to get crow's feet. I'm going to wear my sunglasses. And then quite recently, actually, I was listening to the Andrew Huberman show. And one of his things is protocols for a great day is the first thing you need to do in the morning is go outside and not stare at the sun, but actually get the sunlight in your eyes to get those photons activated or something. So it was actually like, <laughs> I'm like, I, I apologize to you that oh. I d- dismissed you as just being you know, Pony, and then this, you know, world famous podcast, you scientist got this that guy who, t- I mean, he is an ophthalmologist, but you were right. So now I do every morning. I let the sun light into my eyes. Oh, happy to hear that. Yeah. It's a good start of the day. So Honey, I just, I mean, I really just do want to spend this time sort of, you know, our, our relationship's always been very one-sided, like my needing something from you and you giving it to me. So I just want to start with a fundamental question. What do you come from? There are so many things you can say to that question. Uh, but let me bring it back. I'm, I'm a girl, I, a woman. Uh, I, I, I was born in one of the three northern eastern provinces in the Netherlands. On old ground, as I call it. Because it's, it's the, the part of the Netherlands that um, um, was there before any other part. Uh, so there's the be- hand beds, there is uh, the big stones, as, they, as I think you would call them. Um, so I grew up there quite safely out out in the nature. Um, but I always had a tendency to, to, to explore. Uh, and at first, obviously, exploring your own environment. And then I explored larger. And I always wanted to do something that others didn't want to do. So. I think that's uh, ultimately how I ended up doing hotel school because it was hard to get onto. So then I thought, well, let's do that. Uh, so that's a hotel management education. Um, and also brought me to the western side of the Netherlands, the urban side of the Netherlands, because there was simply that's where, where the jobs were. Um, but I always have, was intrigued by, by that, you know, one hand nature, the things that exist already for ages, m- millions of years versus us just being peasants for, well, if you're lucky, 80 years, 90 years. Um, so intrigued by, by both the both elements. And I kept exploring. I think that's, uh, that's what I come from. Um, and I still am exploring. So there's a couple of themes here. Um, I hear the word safe, nature, exploring, wanted to do what others didn't want. So paint the picture for me. Is this a rebellious young girl? Is this a girl that just has this curiosity? Did it feel, did you feel different? Did it feel, did you feel other? How do you position yourself in that environment? How did it, it was, did safe feel good or did safe feel claustrophobic to you what did that what does that word mean to you when you think about that time i think i had a i had a marvelous childhood but i was on my own so i'm i i think um so am i different yeah I, of course but i think anyone everyone is different right but but um yeah i i did feel uh, safe in nature because all the, there's all there is need that that's need to be or that needs to be there right it's not like uh, with people, you need to sometimes put on your guards and, and be mindful of what you say because the words can can hurt or, or vice versa. 
in nature you don't. It's it's accepting, uh, and yet it's it's brutally forceful, right? That uh, so I think that's that's what makes me feel safe. Um, and and am I? It's a rebellious. Of course, I think it's perceived by people as rebellious. But I don't feel as a rebellion. I've, I do feel much more as a pioneer than a rebel. A, mm. a rebel. Um, I simply like new, new things, new experiences. Um, new within the context of the ancient. Respect for the ancient. Yep. Yeah, but yeah. let's go into that a little bit more. Yeah, but that's the duality of everything. I think that's why I like it. Because a lot of things which you think are new are not new, right? They, they were there before. Um, but I, I like to explore it because it teaches me something. Um, yeah, but that's the pioneering in me. So if, if I've done it once, then I want to do something else, which is also sometimes boring because there's also a lot of value in going deeper, definitely. <coughs> uh, but at first, I always want to do something that I haven't done before. So going to hotel management school, which we should explain to people who don't live in the Netherlands, is sort of this, it's, it's, a, it, it's, quite, um, it's quite a discipline. It's quite a, an, uh, a, a formal degree, in a way, that a lot yeah. of people, I think, go into this, the horeca hospitality world. Um, can you kind of explain what the what this education was? What did you learn? What were you interested in? Well, the, the, it's a very generic uh, business administration, uh, so uh, education. But the the one concept that is completely different from any of the other business administration, uh, at, you know, either university or a vocational education, is that it's about human. And, and in a hotel, in hotel management or in hospitality, ultimately it's about the satisfaction of people. So whatever you did, whether it was human resources, finance, ma- finance, man- financial management, operational management, it was uh, ultimately about people mm-hmm. and making them happy and satisfied. I think that is quite helpful in the world that we live in today, where you know ultimately the purpose of any organization is either to keep customers or to um, uh, solve a, 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 an issue in the world that is that needs to be solved by humans ultimately. So I think that's the education in its essence. Can you talk me through how? The, just briefly, or not briefly, the, the career path that took you to the company that we both worked for. Should we say which company it is or should we not? Yeah, well, we can. Right? Microsoft. Yes. Yeah, that'll help. Yeah. <laughs> then we have it out. Okay. <laughs> It'll help, yeah. Um, when I graduated after doing an uh, internship in the U.S. Um, oh, where I, in the U.S.? Uh, Ithaca. Oh, in New York. Yeah. Cool. Um, And it's interesting because Ithaca has a hotel management education uh, as well, also quite well known. So, but I, you know, it's so it's it's funny I ended up there. It was a Caribbean hotel chain, and it was just a very rich lawyer who happened to live in Ithaca, um, studied obviously at Cornell University, uh, and had and bought hotels in the in the Caribbean. so I worked at the marketing head office, which also helped me to understand that I didn't want to go into the operational side of hotel management. Um, 
Then I, um, uh, what did I do next? It's funny, right? It's a long time. I had so many jobs. I, 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 by accident, I ended up at uh, organizing the first Apple, Apple uh, Macworld Expo uh, before Apple was big as it is now. But that's, I think that's when I was intrigued by technology and the possibilities of technology. Um, after which I went to organize events on the, on the beach of Scheveningen, uh, after which I went to uh, a, a publisher, after which I went back to the hotel school, and etc. So there's many jobs in marketing, marketing communications. And what intrigued me in marketing communications is that it, it's so much more about the, the behavioral side of things, that everything is right, where people start to trust you and believe you, than the words or the pictures as where lots of comms departments or marketing departments always focus on the pictures and, and, the, uh, and the words. Um, and that brought, at a certain point I was um, uh, approached by someone who says, you know, we have quite a nice job for you at Microsoft. And my first reaction was, no, 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 I'm not going to work at Microsoft because I was Apple, right? Um, that was because if, if you did communications then it was Apple. That was the first thing. The, th- the second thing I was just, a fresh mom um, I thought an American company that means shitloads of work hard working I don't want to do that it's very performance driven that's not my kind of organization uh, and smart woman as she was so the, the recruiter says have one conversation and then you let me know if it's something for you or not and what intrigued me the most is the, the love of the people that I talk to for the company and I thought if that's if it's if that's there and they are willing to spend 60, 70 hours a week working for that company, something must be right. And if you can bring that to the outside world, then you may not have a problem, which they had at that point of time, a reputation problem, dominant, la-di-la. Um, so I thought, let's explore it. And I can always leave because that was my seventh job anyway, so I can always go. Um, and that's how I ended up there. Hmm. That's funny that your reaction was um, Microsoft, no way, because that was, that was my reaction too. And I, did, I barely even knew what an operating system was. Like, well, Windows is just your computer because I came from the online retail world. But it was the, it was the same, it was a slightly different version of the same experience that um, I came from um, a company working 60, 70 hours a week was coming from a very dark place where lots of people, including myself, burned out, where you were treated as a liability. And I walk into the subsidiary of Microsoft and people seem to be treated more like an asset, where there was a lot of investment in the individual, night and day business culture. Now, of course, I never worked at Microsoft in the US, so I don't know it's different, but in the Netherlands, I'm like, this is something special. I'm sure that you already had a a part of establishing that culture. but it was just the job that got me to the Netherlands, which was my first priority. And then I stayed for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I made the little joke about, you know, being the house pet. But the reason that I say that is because or for all that time, I wasn't really sure why I was there or why I was allowed to stay. And I also kind of see you in that position, too. You really stood out your, you know, you were a little bit more, you know, you're very fashionable, Cody. Like the, your style is very <laughs> different than the blue sh- shirts and the brown shoes. You were also, and I also, I want to ask you, because I felt this way. 
that sometimes I think, and I don't mean this to say, like, put myself down or be self-deprecating, not at all, but I think that people just sort of liked having me around, and I think that as long as I was around, the people around me could feel like, oh, look at how, like, tolerant and, you know, creative or whatever this this sales and marketing organization is for one of the world's giant tech companies, and there was, I guess, some value in that. Um, I was always allowed to go off on the crazy ideas that I had up into a point until you needed the resources and the risk and then that sort of evaporated and I got really tired of that happening to me. And I'm wondering if your experience there was also, was similar or not that they needed, you know, this sort of guru figure, if you will. Yeah as part of the organization, or maybe it just, that just wasn't your experience at all, but I've always wondered. No, but, but I'm, I'm tremendously good in creating my own things. I also, even before Microsoft. So I, I, I think I, I didn't experience it like that. I did know though, that there was a group of people that liked me and there was a group of people that disliked me because the, you called it magical. Uh, I, I, I think when I left, someone says, now the stardust is leaving the building. Did they mean that as a compliment or is yeah, that? Yeah, I, I, do, I do take that as a compliment mm-hmm. because it's, it's, the, it's the unseen and the invisible uh, and at least it's appreciated. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, no, I didn't feel like, uh, of course, um, people were touched by the things I did. Um, and, and if I can change, you know, I'm, I'm quite happy to hear that I, by one or two comments or remarks, I did change something. I think that's ultimately what drives me. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I can help people find a better place inside of them, uh, then I'm satisfied and happy. Yeah. How do you feel about the concept of hero worship? as someone who was sort of iconic in this organization, as somebody who I turned to when I was stuck, I can imagine, well, I'm gonna leave that question open-ended to you because the, the hero worship thing is something that's starting to happen to me a little bit now. And I just, and it's usually young women, and I just wanna say, ladies, like, don't, don't, don't do that. Like, get me off that pedestal, yeah. you know? But how do you feel about that concept? Well, there's two sides to it. On one hand, if you can inspire people to, to come up uh, then I think it's 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 wonderful. What I also what I do say also in in the in in uh, working at WBA, but we can talk about that later. Is then is that I always said you can only see in another person, and if you admire that, it means you have it inside of you. You can, so you can, you know, bring that out. Um, mm. um, the other thing is, yes, please don't put me on a pedestal because then I can fall down, which I, I just simply don't like. And I'm, I'm a very egalitarian person. She's having a dream. She's having a dream. So yeah. we, we, need to, we need to let our listeners know that I have this little suitcase that I carry my gear in because I've set up the podcast in Honey's home and her little... Um, um, Dachshund. Dachshund, thank you, has decided to uh, turn my... Um, little suitcase into her napping spot and she's um in her dreams you know chasing <laughs> rabbits and going down holes and who knows what else is very cute okay anyway yeah so you already just said like five amazing things where does this come from i don't know that's truly i don't know um 
I am quite philosophical, so I do think, you know, my brain is never quiet. So everything that I read or listen to or experience, I do think about. Um, and not because I have to do something with it, but I, I just see it as a little piece of information that can me- make me more whole. I think that's it. Um, are there people in your life that you feel are your philosophical equal oh yeah there's but but on it's always elements right so there's it's not and and fortunately that's the case Um, I can I can read stuff and obviously there are the big leaders that we all admire right Uh, like like the Mandela's and the Gandhi's and and all of that but that makes it almost like the heroism that I just that I don't like but it can also be a, a colleague at work that says something and that makes me um, reassess um, my opinions or my thoughts or um, so it can it can be so many so I don't I don't look at it as one it, it's not in one person mm-hmm. it's all over the place so just to recap Honey was on the leadership team, the management team, when I joined Microsoft, and um, and so it's taken me a really long time to assert myself in a way where that assertion always comes from trusting my gut, not second-guessing myself, getting over that insecurity of... I guess, you know, self-doubt, giving myself the permission that I, I, you know, that I don't need to get from anybody else. That took a really long time for me to get there. And I think it is for a lot of women, which is, which is why I think a lot of women that are well into their fifties now, like I am, are finding this to be the best decade. It is for me. I think that you were able to get there earlier. Would you agree with that? Maybe, uh, but that maybe that's in the opinion of other people's I, uh, people. I'm I'm still insecure inside. I can still be uh, in doubt whether or not I'm allowed to sit at this table or why I am sitting at this table. And I think it's it's healthy as well because there's lots of people who who get a lot of credibility or credits that are not very cautious about their power. Um, but I am. I've. I've always been a child. Uh, even as a child, I. I think I. I. I dare to do things. I think that's that makes it easier, right? Uh, I was four years old and I jumped off the high board because I. Everyone jumped off the low board as part of getting the diploma uh, in in the Netherlands. You need to swim by five, six years old, uh, and my parents thought it's safer for us to put her on swimming classes already. And I said, "Can I jump off the high board?" Because. Uh, I wanted to do it differently and I dared and I think uh, so in the opinion or the 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 perception of lots of people is that I was there uh, a lot earlier but I yeah I think I just dive into stuff quite quickly so let's touch on that concept of bravery so do you remember being scared when you dove dived off the, the higher plank yep yeah of course i was thinking like why did why did i want to do that not not very consciously but it it slips through your mind but then it's it's too far off you need to go but it's also in work Uh, i can still remember i wasn't on the leadership team though but i was close to the leadership team 
um, bringing them into uh, when we started that journey towards a new world of work, uh, which is a, th- a common thing, working flexibly from home and anywhere, any place, anytime. Uh, but at that time, that wasn't a given. Um, and I did bring the management team to um, to a leadership retreat where there was no program. And within five minutes, people were angry at me. Th- those moments, I can still recall. I'm, I, I was afraid. I was, a, I was by then divorced. I needed to care of my, mo- of my children. So I needed the money of a job and the security of a job. So obviously, I'm, I'm afraid, but I don't let fear um, paralyze me. I think that's it. Why were they angry with you within five minutes? No program, no structure. Um, mm-hmm. What are we doing here? What are we doing here? What is this leading to? Uh, whereas we all know we live in a world where, where nothing is certain anymore. So, And if you're a leader, then you're supposed to deal with any certain situation, even if they are uncertain. When you have that anger coming at you, how do you react to it? Um, different. Sometimes I withdraw um, or let it just happen. Um, I think y- you get better at it in time. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, I'm also happy being in my 50s, approaching 60s. So it's, it, I know it's, 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 it's not me they're angry at, but they're angry about the situation. Uh, yeah. So this that makes it easier. So, I, But before that, I withdraw. Okay. Yeah. You need to withdraw, get your wits about you, not react to the emotion and be like, okay, let's, yeah. yeah. But I can also become very emotional. Mm-hmm. So I, you, there's quite few people that I work with that saw me crying, that saw me getting angry. Um, I have yeah. my heart on my sleeve. That's it's, it. it's the burden you have to bear when you're the person who's there to be the key that turns the door that walks everyone else through change. So you, it's your job yeah. in a way to absorb that hostility, yeah. which is awful. Um, and it's, it's another thing. And I, again, I think that you probably installed these programs at Microsoft, but um, all of the soft skills that I learned about how to be a better manager, how to um, negotiate conflict, all came from Microsoft. I've always been really grateful for that, that that those skills helped me grow as a person, as a manager. Um, I think the day-to-day stuff is my my job before Microsoft was at Amazon. Like those, those skills are just like still to this day, so super valuable, but it set me on a path to say, okay, well, what else is out there? What else could I do? I'm really um, into studying behavioral design right now from Sue Amsterdam, somebody we both know, which yeah. yeah. Tom Browning. Um, I'm absolutely fascinated by the uh, potential for behavioral design. That all started at Microsoft. So if you can, in your own words, of course, tell me when you decided it was time to leave, to move on and in your career, and then what happened next? Um, at a certain point, you feel it's getting too easy. Mm. Um, so even if I did really strange things so I, I for example at a certain point we talked about system thinking or if you want to change the world you need to think systems because you can change parts but then something else changes as a result and maybe not to the good i think we'll get to that when you talk about sustainability as well um but the funny thing is that you know when i 
I can still remember uh, bringing the group into a bus to go to a herd uh, with sheep to see how a herd, uh, the, the guy that does this or the woman that does it, uh, doesn't work really hard. She knows, he knows which sheep you need to push forward, how to, to work with the dogs, etc., etc. And they all stepped in you know full of confidence and and no so there were no complaints anymore but the first time there was a lot of complaints <laughs> and then i knew this is not going to work anymore because if you intervene and you want to change something then there needs to be that um, um the fraction the, fr- the friction friction, yeah. the friction um so that's why i decided to leave and then my dream was to start to, because changing an organization and building an organization from within to something that I think an organization is, like a living system um, or an organism actually full of people that just work together towards a common purpose. Um, so I thought, let's, I want to do that from scratch because it's one thing to do it with an existing uh, uh, organization. I want to do it from scratch. And I want to change the financial system. Okay. Wow. Because I thought, well, if the financial system is changed, and there's lots more, a lot more room in in our world to uh, put the money where it's most needed, um, and not where you get more money from it. Um, and I happened to meet someone from the Dutch government, uh, and I I was on on a advisory council of something that was called Access to Medicine, mm-hmm. uh, which looked at the largest medic uh, pharmaceutical companies and and saw what they did to help to achieve the millennial goals um, at that point of time. Um, and this person from the Dutch government left the Dutch co- government to start up something like this. Uh, benchmarking industries because they saw it really working well at pharmaceutical companies and to do something similar but for for multiple industries um, the UN changed the millennial goals to sustainable development goals at that time um, and was the first time that the UN says but we need the private sector to participate in it it can't, it can't only be the NGOs and public sector to do this globally so we came in at a good time um, and he, he asked me to join um, and I reluctantly I did up until the moment where you saw you need a movement so you can benchmark these companies but then what, right? Uh, how do you um, change the behavior of companies you know, sustainably? Uh, that can only happen if others are, uh, other stakeholders are actually holding them to account. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when that came in, I thought, oh, I'll just st- I'll step in as one of the co-founders, which is the World Benchmarking Alliance. So you were a little bit of reluctance at first. Where was that coming from? That hesitation? Because I'm I, I I really saw that if it's just a, a set of benchmarks, fine. You know, I I can see where companies do well and and don't do well. But ultimately, if you want, you you need all of them, right? You need private sector, you need public sector, you need NGOs or civil society, you need academia, all of that to get a world that works for, for, for everyone uh, and that's good enough and a planet that's that's healthy enough to keep us. Um, so I, I didn't want to do that because then you just shine a light on companies. For me, the behavior afterwards to change companies and, and see you know if, if companies understand that they actually depend on the markets that they work in 
uh, and that they are only licensed to, licensed to be successful when they contribute to that market, whether that is uh, by capital or by bringing back resources or taking good care of the resources throughout their supply chains. Only when that notion came into the conversation we had, um, I felt like, yeah, this is this is the challenge I li- I'd like to take up on. Let's tie together the brilliant idea image of the, the shepherd and let's say like a, a you know sheepdog and the sheep and at the total opposite end of the world publicly traded corporate companies and I put link these two together so it's something that I struggle with a lot um, is that feeling of am I working hard enough am I working hard enough you know the, the environment needs me to hurry my investors are expecting their return and it doesn't get you anywhere, and to get yourself out of out of that mode is almost for me impossible. I'm really trying to do that, like let it flow a little bit, Beth. Like let it flow. You know, everything. The, the feeling of urgency doesn't necessarily result in an extra level of productivity. Mm-hmm. And this is an outdated concept now, but that whole concept of leaving your comfort zone was something that was talked about in the early days. And I'm like, I think that this is BS. I think that this is forcing people to do a job that they don't want to do and calling it a challenge or leaving your comfort zone. I was much more interested in keeping people in their passion zone. Let's make an eight, a 10 rather than a four or six. And I kind of think of that as like, um, you know, that's the role that the ideal version of that is, um, are, you know, these shepherding dogs, this is all they, what they want to do. And they're so amazing at it. And all you have to do is train them to be the absolute best at the thing that they want to do the most. And the shepherd has the light touch and the beautiful communication. And if that that dog is doing what it's supposed to do, then it's getting the sheep where they need to be in a way that doesn't harm them or stress them out too much. And when you look at giant publicly traded enterprise companies, I have heard from someone I know who consults them on ESGs that they're like, okay, we're going to set these targets to reduce our CO2 or it's, you know, a fashion company that's going to reduce the amount of water that they're using. And they come back to the, they commit to these goals. And then a year later, they'll come back to this consultant and say, how do we get out of this? Like, there's no way we're going to achieve these goals that we've set for ourselves. I'm like, well, of course, of course there's a way, but in, like you said, the current financial system, the penalty is disappointing investors um it, it, it it's just it's just all it takes is a force of will you know we could we could get rid of single-use plastic water bottles this afternoon if we only had the legislation to do it yes a lot of people are going to lose a lot of money we need to confront the fact that a lot of retail outlets um, business models are defective within the paradigm of sustainability when they're relying too, on too much of their income on the you know ridiculously ridiculously obscene margins on selling water, whether it's flavored or alcoholic or you know thousanded or whatever sparkling in a plastic bottle, how are we going to get ourselves out of this? Well, it, it's it's if you look at the micro system that you describe with the shepherd and the sheep and the dogs because the shepherd also knows which of the sheep are very likely going to be the one that moved to a new place um, right and they're going to name that sheep honey but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the rest of the sheep follow mm-hmm. because that's what the dog helped help the other sheep to do to then not wander off to a different place um, 
if you look at it on a global level and it's not easy right let's let's face it it's not easy it's not easy for the companies it's not easy for those that lead them it's not easy for the investors it's not easy for for the politicians it's not easy it's 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 easier to stay where we are until something really massively worse happens and you have to change that's how humans are most people only change when there is something really bad happening to them and yet I think if you look at, at a generic transition or a transformation, you need to be mindful of what I always call the 20-60-20 rule. So there's 20% who are really trying to, to change it and, and, and not telling them the entire time that they're not doing good enough. It's like little children. You tell them, oh, good, good, good. You can still do better, but let's move on. You're doing well. And, and there's 20% who will continuously tell you it's impossible. Uh, and those are most of the times the loudest um, and whether they come from private publicly listed ones uh, governmental owned because there's we we looked at all these companies privately owned um, and then there's 60 percent in between and i i genuinely believe that people want to do good but you just need to connect on the people level and if we can have human conversations about it what makes it difficult because we can reduce CO2 or we can close these um, uh, fossil fuel companies. And yet there's also people in, in, in countries still quite depending on these companies that we don't want to move here because they don't have any economical uh, possibilities over there. So we need to be mindful not to be single focused on one point of it, but have these ongoing conversations. And then you need a few people who dare to have a vision or a narrative. And I think the current problem is that that narrative doesn't exist. We don't know what the world looks like. We only know what we're moving away from. And there's so many people who just want to stay put where they are or change a few things, uh, whether that's CO2 or plastics. But it's also about people, right? Um, who are depending on jobs. Uh, mm -hmm. This is something that is the key to my studies in behavioral design is, you know, we're moving away from customer profile, which doesn't say anything about the human to the human experience. And it was something that really frustrated me working in the marketing organization at Microsoft. We'd always outsource the marketing campaigns. And I always, I always thought they were really awful. And, the, and it wasn't anything I was necessarily involved in, but I was like, guys, you're acting like your customer, that the only thing they have to think about all day is what you have to say to them. Like, you need to look at this within the context of somebody's entire life. Yep. And they're like, oh, good idea, but we already spent the money. And I was like, okay. But, and, and it's also something that, that we talk about a lot in, in my business at Ozarka is um, our philosophy is and our approach is quite different than everybody else in the space, which is that we put ourselves within the context of somebody's entire life. And we don't think it's reasonable to expect anybody to think about the box that their pad tie came in as much as we do. Um, where they do have to think about it, it's this very short moment, which is the, the, the motion of throwing it away. Yeah. So if that motion feels the same, but the outcome of that motion is not creating waste, that's what we go for. So we actually, look at technology as not the last resort but it's not the first place we go the first place we go is can we achieve what we want to achieve with with design to just intrinsically motivating people to do you know we consider the right thing and then if we do need a little bit of 
of you know tracking um, technology there or something transactional like a deposit or Stasi held, we look at that last. But I really believe that you know in the same way that everybody puts their seatbelt on now, people don't put their seatbelts on now because they're afraid of breaking the law. They don't even think about it. Yeah. That's what we're headed toward. And I yeah. I'll, oh go ahead. No, but that's what I call you need to internalize that mm-hmm. that that new frame. And then, then you need to start to embody it, like your example with, with the seatbelt is the right one. I think I can still remember it was introduced in the Netherlands and my father didn't want to wear a seatbelt because it was dangerous, hmm. um, whatever he was right or wrong. But that, that's the motion people go through. And I think the biggest problem that we do is we dehumanize it, right? So you don't help people to go through that motion. Your first, your, your first reaction to something new, where, even if it's, it's, if it's small, it's rejection. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you start to explore, hmm, well, maybe, maybe actually I can learn something from it. Or maybe it's, it's and even like the plastic waste you're talking about, you know, the first reaction in my head when I needed to start separating it is like additional work, right? That's the, it's what happened, and I already have a busy life, and now I also need to la la la. Uh, but it needs a willingness, and then in in I think 60, 70 percent of the cases, actually, it's it's it gives you something in return when you have the willingness to step into it. But yeah, you, it, you it, need what, to have the open mind and your open heart to it, and it gives you something, and that's what we're exploring. Yeah. What is that? You know, attention is is currency. When we say pay attention, what are you buying with your attention? Is it a feeling, a feeling of satisfaction? It can be tiny, 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 but it just has to be positive or not negative. Yeah. Um, right. Um, oh, no, I lost my train of thought. Okay. Um, oh, yes. So this is a bit cynical, but um, I think about the uh, protests during the Vietnam War in the 60s and early 70s. And I wonder why there isn't that level of activism, say in the United States or in Western Europe now. And the reason for that is because no one in the US is facing a mandatory draft. And so the cynical side of me says, well, these people were really protesting the war. They were protesting the fact that they were gonna be required to fight the war, that it wasn't their choice. And I'm hopeful that with the plastic pollution crisis, that the headlines that I'm reading about the export of plastic waste is about to collapse and that all of this, these megatons of plastic waste are going to end up in our back door. Then when we see it, when there's no away, when it isn't being, you know, eight stories tall mountain trash mountains with, you know, four-year-olds picking through it when it's in our back door, then I think we're going to be um, a little bit more motivated to do something about single-use plastic. I don't know. It's it's I, ultimately there's two ways where people change. And either there is a a north star or something that is appealing to them and is nearby enough to to go towards to, um, or there is a burning platform. Uh, and you can see that we had some significant burning platforms in in the last decades. But when people don't feel it, right, it's, it's not impacting their own personal lives, it's much more difficult to change your behavior. So that means that in, in the case of, of this example with, with the plastic, uh, you need to bring an appealing North Star of what it brings to you as an, as an individual 
if you get rid of that uh, plastic and that can be different motivators right that can be because i want to do good for the world and i want to be acknowledged for it or it can be uh, i don't want to bring that much plastic to a, a garbage bin anymore because i feel embarrassed or it's 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 many different things um and once and you can you can see almost like a maturity model in technology the same with sustainability climate these days i think you're quite stupid if you don't know what co2 is and then you need to reduce it and, and i think more or less people start to, and even eating less meat becomes quite a commonality right um and i think all the other topics will go through that same pathway of a maturity model and even for companies because first they start we always say it's funny who, it, it depends who you talk to whether or not where, how mature companies are so if it's the communications department it's still a reputation risk fine when you start to talk to the legal department it becomes a liability mm, more serious because you know get closer to, to to the ceo to the board and once you talk to the ceo and he or she understands it is actually the basis of its the continuity of the organization then you you get into a more mature model um, but that takes a long time and there's so many topics that you need to tackle that it's also sometimes difficult for companies to to understand where they need to put their attention so and for me then you need to make it quite clear for companies what is closest to your core business what is closest where can you actually impact uh, topics uh, that are so close to you let's go back to microsoft so microsoft gives technology delivers technology so digital inclusion, which is an element that's part of the sustainable development goal, is close to their, um, to their core, the core of their business. Um, instead of focusing on, on reducing CO2, which they also do, you can actually make them heroes in something that what they're good at, which is you know, tech, delivering technologies to everyone in the world in such a way that people know how to how to allow technology to work for them uh, and that's similar for any company ultimately if you understand what your purpose is and we all know that when you do marketing but you truly internalize your purpose i know you know how to be sustainable and to motivate your people i want to get your opinion on something that really scares me and I just call it irresponsible marketing, but it's basically marketing. Uh, I think about Red Bull or any bottled water company where you can create any narrative you want and you can sell around that narrative. Maybe the narrative is you know, energy or maybe the narrative is hydration. And you could tell people you need to be hydrated at all times or at least terrible things are going to happen to you and then people buy your product which is water in a plastic bottle i'm susceptible to what we all are um and then you know the the um the narrative can change and then we all do something else what really scares me is something that goes beyond marketing which is the cult of personality and you touched on this very slightly earlier and i want to dig into it so I have a personal problem with Elon Musk. Um, and not necessarily Elon Musk himself, but the people around him who support him. 
And the first thing that people will say is that Elon Musk is a genius. And I'm like, well, you know what? Like, lots of people can be a genius when you have people around you bolstering you when you're really, really failing. Failing. So I think he is a genius, but I don't think he's a genius in the way that people think that he's this like technical genius. I actually see a lot, a, a certain thread among Elon Musk, maybe um, Zuckerberg and Donald Trump. These are men who had, I don't necessarily think so much with Zuckerberg, but definitely with Trump and Elon, terrible childhoods with awful fathers where they were abused and bullied and it, it warps them. And for the rest of their life, they're, pers- they're pursuing something to try and fill a hole that will never be filled. Why on earth is a real estate mo- mogul famous? Why on earth is this technologist so famous? He's on the red carpet. This is something that he needs and wants and pursues. And as a result of that, he has this cult of personality that all these other people, men, want to be a part of. So when he you know, can't deliver on deposits he's taken on cars and he can't deliver the cars and the production and manufacturing is way behind, you know, most people would be out of business. He gets bailed out. It's happened a few times. Um, I always think about, you know, this, this fictional woman in my mind named um, Ellen, I don't know, Musket. And she has, you know, nine children by five different men. And she's a CEO of some company. Like it would never fly ever. And he gets to joke it off by saying, well, I'm afraid of like, you know, population crashing. So I'm going to have a bunch of kids by a bunch of different women. Like personally, I don't respect him. The fact that he's had burnouts and has worked himself almost to death, not admirable. I find almost nothing to admire in this person. (laughs) And yet so many other people do. And I I speak about it very vocally and it's going to happen again. I think once this guy does crash and burn, I'm going to be like looking back at my little LinkedIn posts from five years ago. going, see, I told you. But the one thing, and I was just getting back to this point of like why he's even more dangerous than marketing is because he's so wealthy and he's so famous that he gets to make a decision for the rest of us that aren't necessarily the right decision. And I've always, another thing I've always been incredibly skeptical about is the sustainability of electric cars. Um, And nobody's ever been able to answer my questions satisfactorily until recently. I've always been in favor of rooting for and hoping for hydrogen technology. And, you know, three or four years ago, the narrative was hydrogen technology is impossible. It's never going to be viable. And then almost overnight, suddenly it was. And I think that hydrogen is a few years away from being economically viable where it can seriously, seriously compete with EVs. So he was on, you know, he's on with his, like one of his many buddies, he's on Joe Rogan's podcast, I don't know, a couple of months ago. And, you know, they're friends, but Joe's asking him some very easy to answer straightforward questions about limitation in range, range anxiety, the fact that EVs are something like 70% heavier than than benzene or uh, gasoline cars. And he blows off the questions. He's like, oh yeah, well, there is no issue with range. Um, and yeah, they're heavier, but so what? And so Joe pushes him on it a little bit. He still continues to brush off the questions. And because they're friends, he lets them off the hook. Where with somebody else, I don't think he would. These are huge, huge problems. And the fact that half of the 16 cobalt mines in um, the Congo are owned by the Chinese is something that I that doesn't sit well with me. So it's like, when you see these signs that says, stop the dig, I'm like, which dig? Digging for oil or digging for cobalt? Because they're both mining. 
and and I don't like the fact that nobody's allowing him, nobody is taking him to task on these issues um, because he has all the money. And it, and I and I hope that somebody, and maybe it'll even be Elon that'll switch to hydrogen, but I hope that somebody figures out a way to take this trend down. Because the other thing too is that the infrastructure is never, ever, ever gonna be able to keep up with this. We have to be able to take cars that we have now and somehow convert them to something sustainable. And you're never gonna be able to, it's gonna cost $100,000 to put a giant battery in, you know, your 10 year old Honda Civic or whatever. So, <laughs> so anyway, please comment. Yeah. You know, the funny thing, if, if anything you wanna change in the world, if you do the same thing, so you know, he, the both men you're talking about are quite opinionated men, right? So they believe they, they know it all. I, I don't know them. I, I have no idea. I, I know the stories. I've seen it. I see what they do. I can see what they do well. And I can see, the, see even, well, I can mostly see what they don't do well. Because I find it hard to see the love behind all the negativity. Um, especially with Trump. And, and I won't go go there no. because that's too let's, let's just stick to Elon. Yeah, it's yeah. too too painful. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if I if I look at Elon, then I at least one thing he did he moved the needle. Uh, and and the, the big problem with people, and we talked about this before, is when they become too powerful, and there's not there are no people around them that hold them down or, or are keeping keeping them humble. Um, people start to believe in their own power. And that is dangerous. That's in, that is indeed uh, dangerous. Um, but when it doesn't, it, when it's not getting stopped by people around it, it gets stopped by something else, uh, right? Either it is um, it's it's policy or law or or anything else, or reputation or in, and and I ho- I do hope with you that, that that there will be more people demonstrating and going out on the streets for for different topics, not just the ecological side of, of sustainability, but also the social inclusion side of of sustainability. Um, but that takes time, uh, and it's it's always it's it's cycles. Um, so he becomes a hero and he falls off his pedestal. We talked about pedestals before as well. There will be a moment in time he will fall down. Uh, and you hope that there will become there will be more leaders, uh, whether they are male or female, uh, you know, whatever, that have a higher standard in morality. And I think that is because I was thinking about that. What can what can you do to increase sustainability on this entire planet, not just on the on the, the side of the planet that has had it all and now is all of a sudden waking up and thinking, oh, we've done it wrong, we need to do it differently. Um, and then telling the rest of the world they need to do it differently, which, I've, which is really something that is bothering me. Um, the only thing you do is to increase your your in your awareness to go inside and see your own behavior because that's we all know it if i change my behavior the people around me change their behavior and if that is happening also on leadership in in leadership roles where you where you if you want to or not you have a role your role model for many many people then you give a lot of space and room for others to change their behavior as well uh, so that's my hope because I can see I can see a very ugly future 
it's quite easy currently and I can see a very bright future if I if I look at you know the smaller movements that are also taking place across the globe right where in Kenya when you carry a plastic bag you get a fine of 1500 euros then I think well at least there's 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 a country waking up um, and I don't believe in policy or laws for everything Mm-mm. but only when it's when you can change that needle when you change that sheep that that needs to move to the other place to uh, to eat the grass or the, the moors and that needs that needs wise people you told me that one of the reasons that you left Microsoft was that the job was getting too easy so what is for all of us that are trying to make the world a better place what's the end goal when is it you know done and dusted mission accomplished well I, I know that doesn't that that won't happen not in my lifespan. Do you think for, that for my my personal motivation is equality? So I'm I'm very much, and equality means a healthy planet, right? Because that means that everyone has access to what the planet provi- provides us, and we need to uh, understand that without a healthy planet, there is no humanity. It's it's it's. I think the notion of people that we are outside the, the natural ecosystem is well. That's an illusion. So for me, it's equality. Um, so, what I, I guess what I'm trying to explore is um, thanks. Thank you. Okay, equality check in the box. Um, I think that uh, the reason I brought up that term too easy is that uh, I, I think that human beings, in order to be happy, need to. Um, need to endure some level of struggle, strife, challenge, um, suffering. Yep, sure. <laughs> um, and any degree to 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 experience the feeling of, of self satisfaction. Um, and if things are, you know, we see people who things are handed to them too easily, too quickly, um, without them having to work for it. They're not very nice people to be around. So if we've created the, a world where everybody, everything is equal and everything is easy for everyone all the time, is, is that what we're aiming for? What are we aiming for? I, I'm, I'm struggling to answer this question, so I ask it a lot. Yeah, but for me, equality is something else than equal, because we're not equal. Mm-hmm. You and I aren't equal, right? But can we face, can we look each other in the eyes and have that conversation knowing what is, what? what sits within me as a struggle and what sits in you as a struggle, I think. But that's very idealistic, right? Because it requires a lot of introspection uh, in a world that is that is very looking outwards all the time for most people. But I, I don't believe that it means that there is no struggle. Of course there is struggle. Um, you asked me the question around, are you... Um, you know, you, that something around being afraid, or mm-hmm. you're there. Um, um, I I think personal development, or whatever you want to call it, personal leadership. I, I don't care what name you, you give it. There's always more to explore. Mm-hmm. There, so it doesn't mean it's getting easier. The only thing you know by by really doing a lot of introspection and going inwards and knowing that your behavior ultimately has these waves waves or resonates bigger um, it it means that you know the results are there the first time it's scary because you, you you change something significant maybe 
uh, and you don't know what what the outcome will be but by making it a habit you know you, you get a better person mm-hmm. you get happier without a lot of needs you also talked about what I call the network effect which is that your personal behavior will influence the behavior of, of, of people around you it's again strategically it's part of of the model of my company I asked my neighbor there's two houses in between us this question we have these types of talks and he said I'm not really interested in improving the lives of anybody other than my neighbors three doors this way three doors this way my family and my friends because that's all I can do and I thought that's a really nice answer because it's achievable yep. and if we all kind of in a network effect broaden that I'm like this that 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 gave me some comfort yep. you know as but opposed to just thinking that nirvana on planet earth is the only thing that we should no, go for no but i think if you intrinsically uh, change the life of a person that has a tremendous ripple effect mm-hmm. you 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 named it yourself right when i asked you why why are you asking for permission um but the same is is true if you go into a shop I, and, and especially in, in the western side or the urban side of, of the netherlands the amount of people that are just grumpy uh, and are not willing to say thank you to the person that is helping them. See what happens if you just, you know, those two words, and you mean them, right? It's not that you do it <laughs> in, in, I call it the American way, you say thank you because you have to. No, you mean it. You say thank you. Something happens. Mm-hmm. And it's also on the street. If you see a, a, an, an older lady just a little while ago, she, she, she started talking to me, and I took five minutes to talk to her. Um, that changes a whole lot and that for me is to the, 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 the make it more human let's try to see each other as humans with all everyone has struggles everyone has pain everyone has a history everyone has gone through difficult times can we just accept that and then see that there's in 99.9999% of the cases a beautiful person behind it different mm-hmm. One of my favorite moments at Microsoft, and I will say unabashedly that there were many, we had hired in um, the, I think they were called Wildlife Collective at the time to do these installations where everyone was sort of interacting with each other in simple ways. And the one that really got to me was, um, it was just something so silly, but it was just a box and you would write something in it about yourself anonymously that nobody knew. And it was incredible to me what people like Microsoft employees were revealing in these notes. And, you know, I, I did it already earlier, like, you know, the, the sales guys in the blue shirts and the brown shoes who just don't seem to have any problems and have this, you know, straight and narrow life. The stories that in these little pieces of paper were just so heartbreaking. Yeah. And, and that's when I realized, you know what, Beth, everybody has pain and the guy with the six-figure salary, he's an upper management in some corporate company with his portion, his two kids, and his, you know, vacations. He's got, he's got pain. Yeah. He's got a story. Yeah. So and going back to Elon Musk, you know, it's easy to blame him. Uh, but I but again, I don't blame him. I blame no. the people that don't hold him accountable. To account. Yeah. yeah to account. Yeah. But I, I do feel that if you would invite that person that probably is hidden because of his past and his, his childhood, and, but you would truly invite that person out. Uh, yeah. And maybe it's too late. I don't know. Mm. But I, 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 I still want to believe that. Let's put it that way. Because if I don't believe that, then I, 
I go into a very ugly pathway. Because mm. look, I, there's there's so many ugly leaders at this point of time that are are well, they seem to be quite ruthless. Yeah, ruthless. Oh, that yeah. word. Yeah. yeah. They don't seem to care. That's it. And ultimately, is I do you care? Yeah. And I do care. That's it. And again, it could be very straightforward. It, it's it's practical to maintain our habitat so yeah. that it's not on fire all the time. I yeah. think we all kind of want yeah. it to stick around. Yeah. It doesn't have to be such a big thing. And and make it as big as you can, right? Yeah. I, I, I love big things. That's it. I've, you know, probably a bit dramatic in mm-hmm. that sense. Uh, but if you if you only want to do the three neighbors left and right, fine. Sure. If, but if we all do that, then I I, can, I, I truly believe mm-hmm. we can create a better world. It's one of the things I learned at WBA, World Benchmarking Alliance, is um, especially from my African colleagues. Um, I, I have a South African n- de- near and dear colleague there, and she uh, she and I started to talk about Ubuntu. Uh, so I exist only by the by the fact that you exist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, but you carry that within you, right? For us, it's it's almost like a mental concept because we didn't grow up in that notion that you are depending on your communities, and you did. So why, you know? We have inclusive as a value in our organization for a reason, so bring it in, please do, because that's, you carry that inside. And through her, I could see that if the starting point is the other instead of the, the you, the I, where that's how we grow up here in, in, in Western societies, uh, where it's all about the me and the I and, the, uh, and, and me as a person and an individual. Um, I could learn a lot of what it means if you start with the other. And the notion of the fact that if that other person has something to eat, then I have something to eat because it feeds me. Mm. Um, so my last sentences last week were, please take care of one another because then you know someone else is taking care of you instead of take good care of yourself. I do say that sometimes when I see people are really struggling with taking good care of themselves, but I think it's that notion. And if we start doing that, if you want to do what you want to see, what do you want to accept? I learned recently that Dutch people, so this is, these are generalizations coming from Dutch people describing yeah. this, so this yeah. is why I want to talk to you about it, have a really hard time asking for help if they feel like they can't return the favor. And so this whole, I, I was this was revealed to me a couple of months ago when somebody at, at the startup um, meetup was talking about how she went to the U.S. and she was struggling to think about this business she wanted to start and all these Americans around here were like, oh, well, you should talk to this person and do this and do that and do that. And she's like, why are you all being so helpful and so nice to me? It's just very natural. And they're like, well, why wouldn't we? And she's like, but what's in it for you? They're like, we don't, don't even think about it like that. And as soon as she told this story, I started noticing where I hadn't noticed it before, how often that happens to me. Last week, somebody called me and was asking, um, if I would speak at a thing. And um, and I said, yeah, sure, I'll speak at the thing. And he goes, okay, well, I can't pay you or anything. I'm like, that's no problem. And he's like, okay, but then what's, what do you want What do you want from me? What, what's in this for you? I'm like, I, I never answer that question. If you need my help, I help. This is fun. 
And apparently this is, this, the, the Dutch culture is extremely transactional when it comes to asking for help. Would you agree with that? Or what's your take on that? Well, I do recognize mm. it. Yeah, that's it. I'm, I'm not sure if it's true for everyone I know, but I, I do find that hard, yeah. Hmm. I, I think we grew up in a, in a, it's just such a little country, right? So we need to fight our ways in. Mm. I think that's how we became, that's our culture. Um, and it's a pity, because I, I do feel that people are much more willing to help uh, than we know, than I know. But it's it's definitely something I recognize, yeah. Hmm. That made me feel kind of sad. I'm like, oh, guys, oh. like you don't need yeah. to <laughs> worry about that. I mean, yeah. it, it served a purpose at least at some point, but there's this residual sort of internalized yeah. cultural... And, and, and I think the European countries have much more social systems, right? Mm. So you, either you, don't, you, you depend on the government to solve it for you, uh, I think we're mm. in the U.S. system, at least that's what I noticed when I lived there, is that you are you have to depend on each other in, in the difficult situations because the, the, it's there's not that that social welfare system as that we know as we know it here in Europe. Um, I also think that spoiled people in a way uh, and to depend on the government for many things, um, and I do like part of it, but that it's also making people a bit dependent right uh, and waiting for others yeah um, yeah i recognize that definitely yeah. um fear so we're jumping off the high diving board uh people have all also have often said to me beth you're so brave which you know you over you know you left your country or you've started some great big giant thing um to me, the definition of bravery is overcoming fear. And I've never thought of myself as brave because I hate the feeling of feeling afraid. Uh, I'll do anything to avoid it. And when I ask myself, well, what are you afraid of? It's usually pretty big things like I'm afraid of death. <laughs> I'm afraid of really hurting myself. Um, you know, kind of end game things. Existential. 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 I'm not afraid of failure. No. Because I I just don't care about failure. That's fine. Um, I think I, and so. Of course, like people are projecting their own um, fears onto you. But I I actually am not a brave person. I don't face fear. I avoid it at all costs. Um, and if I have to do something that I think I'm really afraid of, I'll break it down in little bitty pieces. Um, but or like roller coasters no 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 no. what am i afraid of i'm afraid of um throwing up you know like i'll do that's what i think is going to happen i don't like that feeling no. there's nothing on the there's nothing to gain on the other side of overcoming the fear of of being on roller coasters for example what's your relationship with fear well and the biggest fear i have is that i'm not not allowed to be here so it's also quite existential but it, it trickles down in a lot of fears. The fear of, you know, it's not perfect. Uh, and I know that, mentally I know that, but I think it's, it's, it's been infused in so many things I do. Um, so I've, I've learned to face those fears, not as, uh, like I said before, that they paralyze me, but to really understand that that's my ego talking to me in most of the cases. Um, and it helps me to have that conversation with my ego and to see if that fear is so if I uh, cross the road and, and a car is approaching it probably says be careful because you may die then I better listen to it 
Um, but in most cases also to see whether or not it's, it's a rational or irrational fear. Um, so I do believe though that it's interesting, it's important for people to learn to see their fears because every human being has a fear. Whether it's being accepted, it's being loved, it's being it's to belong. I think that there's a lot of fears underneath um, uh, human beings that it's good to just to face them, not to then to become a victim of it, but to really understand that they do drive your behavior in some cases in the good direction and in some cases really in a bad direction. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about the example of, of horrible childhood. Uh, and how it how it creates you know in some ca- in some cases very successful people up to up to until a certain point because I think they're still afraid of not being accepted. Um, so for me, that's how I I look at fear. It's it's not as a paralyzing thing, but as actually as a as a way to, to learn much better how I do things or don't do things or how I respond to things or react to people. I think it's something that could be quite a valuable exercise in people asking themselves, what are you really afraid of? Yeah. Asking myself that recently, be like, well, I'm afraid of roller coasters. Yeah. Um, it just very, because of the, because it's a physical fear. But I, I, I discovered a fear that I had in quite an interesting way. Um, when several years ago, Michael and I uh, hired a, um, an executive coach and he's a really special coach because he, he helps you, you know, this, this, like your business model, but also your interpersonal relationships. And of course, as a, a married couple running a business, we um, have, you know, maybe some situations that are unique in that regard. And so I said to him that a lot of investors shy away from married couples running a business because the business can cause divorce. But for us, it's the opposite situation because we like it and love and enjoy each other so much that we tend to maybe capitulate or agree with the other person to save feelings. And I've, I've always done that. And I, I said to this coach that um, if Michael's having a bad day or is upset about something, I can't stand it. I can't stand to see the person that I love if experiencing negative feelings. And I'll do anything to alleviate those feelings for him as soon as possible. Yeah. And so the coach, and you can see where this is going, but the coach said, um, but you need to hold the space for him. Why isn't Michael allow, entitled to have a bad day or have bad feelings? And then, of course, I realized it's not his feelings I'm trying to deal with. It's my own because I grew up in um, quite a shouty, loud household and I hated it. So I'm, I'm you dealing with my own feelings yeah. and, and putting it on him. Yeah. And that, I mean, it's such, I mean, for people who weren't in that headspace, that seems so obvious. But for me, it was such a breakthrough. Yeah. And, you know, and I still now I catch myself. I'm like, oh, Michael's having a bad day. I really hate how this feels, but I know it's my feelings that I'm dealing with, and I just have. To and let it's him interesting do it. then to explore why you know you probably know bits oh, and pieces immediately, of it. Yeah, yeah, where that's and coming from. Why you from. have it, and then yeah. how you when it's standing in your way, or when it's actually helping yeah. you moving forward. Yeah. So I've been yeah. trying to think about what am I really af- afraid of, and how is it affecting my behavior and they sit on different levels mm. right so i just named my very existential fear mm-hmm. uh, that i can completely recall back to your childhood and things that happened and la da da uh, and that's all not very relevant it's just the outcome of something and and that's what i have to live with but it's also um uh, you know be, being being dependent on someone is quite dangerous for me as well as a pioneer so that's what I'm also afraid of. Any sense of dependency is kind of, ooh, oh, careful, careful, careful. Um, 
and it's always funny to ask yourself and, and I think that's really similar to the question I once asked you why are you asking for permission is and then what mm-hmm. right so I've left jobs when I didn't have any other jobs but because I, I was just it was done and I needed to explore you know the world again and to see what comes next and, and allow the future to emerge uh, and of course I'm afraid right <laughs> Can I still uh, do my nails every four weeks? Because I love to do my nails. That's that's stupid little fear. So it's it happens on so many different layers mm. and levels. Um, but not to paralyze you. I think just facing it is probably one of the best ways to, to deal with it and to learn from it and to grow from it. Yeah. Mm. And to understand your core personality. So as somebody like myself who has very severe ADHD, the fear is um, a, is a really good thing to have, but it, it comes super, super late. It's like, oh, Beth, you might not be able to pay your mortgage next month. You better get that. I start to get a little f- afraid and kick it into gear. Yeah. Where maybe yeah. a, a, norm, a, a more responsible person would have that fear. Like, Beth, a year from now, you won't yeah. be able to pay your mortgage. So. But maybe too soon that holds them into, well, not many people. In, we talked about that as well in jobs that they are not happy. That's in. right. Yeah. Back to World Benchmark Alliance. Definitely something that you've pioneered. Can you talk me through, um, I know that you've recently l- l- last left, Friday <laughs> left the organization yeah, super yeah. recently. So, yeah. so talk me through the journey there. Well, we, we did build that organization up to a hundred people across the globe. Uh, so I think you know, literally across the globe. So people that are working and living elsewhere. So it was, um, um, flexible virtual organization in the basis with two little offices one in Amsterdam one in London um, I, I, I took uh, you know the reinventing organization with Frederick Laloux which is Teal as a basis I used with the theory U of Otto Scharmer and you know many many of the theories that are out there on how do you create an organization like a living system? Because if you want to create a movement, you need to move along with what happens in the outside world. It's a not-for-profit. Um, so we also continue to secure uh, funding. And yet that was always a challenge, right? How do you create impact and yet you need to secure funding? Um, and after f- six years, seven years, almost seven years, um, I could feel that my time has come to leave. Um, a couple of reasons. Um, I think the, the biggest reason for me is uh, I'm an architect. So you get into a point when, when there's 100 plus people that there's more detail needed, more processes needed. Um, and that's, it's, for me, that's not, that's not giving me a lot of energy. Um, I also felt that I, I, you know, like someone said it very beautifully, you're the big big old trees and people are just standing in your shadow and when now you're leaving people can stand up and 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 start growing with what you what you gave um i also very much a how person so i I love to look at organizational development and people development and personal development as an as a means to create as much possible impact um and i could see that i came to my limits there um so i thought it's done I leave. Mm. Uh, that's it. And next? No idea. Hmm. I know something is coming, but I don't know what. I hope something is coming as well. So I, it sounds very s- confident, but 
Um, but I want to give it time. Um, because I, 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 I still feel I have to do something, but I have no idea what that is. But not a repetition of what I've done before. Something completely new? Maybe. Hmm. I'm excited for you. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Yeah, me too. Okay, Honey, I want to end our conversation today with the most controversial aspect of your reputation. Ah, here we go. <laughs> the W word. You are on a different plane, I think, spiritually, um, connected to something touched, maybe. You want to talk about what that is? I think we're all spiritual creatures. Um, that we are sometimes forgetting that our thinking mind is just one part of us. Um, let's call it intuition. You call it your gut feel. I, I think, you know, we have three brains. I think that's even scientifically proven. So our, we have our brain brains, our mind, uh, the thinking mind. Then we have our heart. Uh, and we have our body, and our body holds a lot of a lot of more intelligence than we do think, um, and that you can call intuition. Um, I was I always want I always knew I had to trust that, and that that something was guiding me, and that sounds uh, tremendously vague or woo woo as you said it at the beginning, but. Um, I knew that if I would bring that back into the world and balance it out, not as a, as a replacement of the very material, um, visible, um, I know someone starts to drill because they don't want to hear this, <laughs> but it's uh, as, a, as, a, as a good dynamic balance, like in nature, the feminine and the masculine, uh, that that's my purpose of this life. If you had a magic wand, and maybe you do, you probably do, and it's new, what's the first thing you would want it to do? If you could just like flick it, you know, Harry's Potter style. It doesn't have to be so deep. <laughs> Let's bring back compassion. Honeybane, mm. thank you very much. <laughs> thank you, Beth Martha. This, this is absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for your generosity me. and your time. Um, yeah, I got I got to know you a little bit better today, and that's that's what I came to do. Oh. Take good care. Thank you. You too.